right, this morning we are going to look at many passages of Scripture. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to take your Bibles and get ready to turn. Not all those passages that I mentioned I want you to turn to, but the ones I mentioned at least we should turn to them. Because I want to answer, try to answer the question, not in its totality, because it would take many more messages than one message to do this. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, let me say, first of all, that Jesus' death was and remains to be the apex of all human history. That has not changed. That will never change no matter what anybody says about it. And it became very clear when I was in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the final and complete revelation of God where it says, it said in chapter 1 of verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus Christ is the final revelation of God. There is no more revelation. Revelation is closed. God's done speaking and writing. Now we need to take what he's already written and find out what it says. And that's what we're, that is our job as long as we're here. Well, let me clear up some misconceptions before I get into it about why Jesus came to die. Some misconceptions. Some people say that uh, Jesus deserved to die. We find that in Scripture in the sense that he made himself to be God, because he was. But some people didn't believe he was, and so they called him a blasphemer and wanted to kill him. And so some believe that he deserved to die. Others have said, well, he wanted to show us how much God loved us. Uh, that is a derivative of the death of Christ, but it is not the main reason. The main reason was that you and I needed to be rescued. That's the main reason. So that's a misconception. Another misconception is that he wanted to show us how much not only how much God loved us, but he wanted to leave us an example on how to love others. Well, that's true, because 1 Peter 2.21 does say, since Christ suffered for you leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, but that still is not the main reason uh, why Christ died. That's not one of the main reasons. Another would say this, well, Jesus died because he was overcome by his enemies. Well, in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. Uh, and it said, This is a commandment I received from my Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, by his own authority, laid down his death. It was not because of the enemies that were overcoming him. In fact, the word of God tells us that Jesus could have called a legion of angels. That's about 6,000 angels, I guess, if you do the math. And if you remember in the Old Testament, one angel in one evening killed 185,000 soldiers in one night in the camp of Assyria. Uh, so if he, he could have called help for help at any time, but he did not uh, because he wanted to display his full humanity to, to us. So none of those are the reasons why. They're all really misconceptions. Uh, but there are some legitimate, of course, strong reasons, scriptural reasons why Jesus had to die. And I want to leave you with about seven of them, but there's more than that. And here's the first one. The first one, the first reason Jesus had to die, because Jesus said so. On different occasions, he said, I have come to die. In fact, let's take our Bibles and look at several passages. John chapter 7 and verse 30. Remember, when you're reading through the Gospels, you'll, you're going to find this little term uh, all over the place. My hour had not yet come. 
In John 7, the Gospel of John 7, verse 30, it says, So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. And then John 8, 20, these words he spoke in the treasury, and he taught in the temple, and no one seized him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 12, it kind of brings those things together and, and gives us the purpose where Jesus says, here's a purpose. And in chapter 12, verse 27, it says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And then he says, But for this purpose I came to this hour. So Jesus very being very calculated in his life starting at age 30 to three years of ministry that he kept saying to his disciples when people tried to seize him he passed through the crowd he'd get out of there some way or another and the reason why they could never get him they could never seize him is because it was not time yet it was all timing Jesus came into the world at the proper time in due time Jesus was seized by his enemies at the proper moment. Jesus died on the cross at the proper exact moment in time because God planned it. God planned it that way. So see, why did he die is because he said he would, and that's exactly what he did. He also, under that one too, he also came to die as a human, remember? In Hebrews, I'm not going to go into that right now, in chapter 2, verse 9 Jesus said, I mean, it says in the Word of God, namely, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with agony, or crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, that he had to display his full humanity uh, when he came into the world. A second reason why Jesus had to die is because Jesus' death was the only way to redeem us. Redeems means to purchase. We're sinners by choice and by nature, and we have a bad heart and a bad record. We need someone able and willing to purchase us, to buy us. We need someone with the power to do it, with the wealth to do it, with the wherewithal to do it. And of course, that person was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to redeem us from several things. I'll mention two of them. He came to redeem us from the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. The ultimate consequence of sin is that sin bars one from the presence of God. Sin keeps one from the kingdom of God. It is sin that keeps us out of the presence of a holy God. So he had to rescue us, redeem us from the very consequences of that that we can't come into the presence of God with our sin. In fact, a good passage of Scripture to use here is Galatians 5, verse 18 to 20. It'd be good for you to turn there, because in this passage, he does kind of forewarn them about this very point, where he lists the sins in verse number 19 of Galatians chapter 5, and then verse 20 and 21, he, he brings it to that point where he says in verse 19 in Galatians 5 now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy outbursts of anger disputes dissension factions envying drunkenness carousing and things like these this is not an exhaustive list of sins things like these and then it says this in verse 21 of which i forewarned you just as i have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of god so see the lord had to rescue us had to redeem us he came to die to redeem us the second thing under this title is that he had to redeem us from the anger of God. Yes, from the anger of God. In John, a verse you already know already, John 3.36, you know, God is angry at you. 
you don't hear that. Matter of fact, that's strange to many people's ears, but it is biblical. If you, again, are reminded of John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So, see, God does not love you the way you are or the way you were if you were a believer. He doesn't. He will save you the way you are, but he does not love you the way you are, in your sin and guilt, at least. He does not love you in that state. He actually, his wrath and anger is upon you. So, see, you need to understand and people need to understand that they are guilty before God. And, of course, many people will say, well, I don't need any more guilt, but you need this kind of guilt. You need the kind of guilt the Holy Spirit of God produces because it's the kind of guilt that shows you who you are and then brings you to the place by the gospel of Jesus Christ on what to do about it. See, you're not good in the standing with God. You are in trouble. You are caught in the slave market of sin, and there is nothing you and I can do the, you and I can do to save ourselves. We are there. So see, the main thing that Jesus came to save you from is God Himself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for the Word of God. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel that saves us. And I pray, Lord, that today that you would just drive home to our heart during this season the reasons why you've died and to the extent you went to to save us. And I pray that we would grow just in appreciation and love for you in ways we never have before. And I pray, Lord, that you would even solidify in our mind the gospel itself so we can properly give it to someone else. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, of course, praying doesn't mean I'm done. It means I'm just starting. See, so the main thing, as I just said, Jesus came to save you is from God. You need to be rescued from God himself. The King James version in Psalm 711 says, God judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. That means in the Hebrew Bible, it is the word indignation. He has indignation towards the sinner, towards the wicked. And of course, in the Greek translation of it, it, it uses the word anger or orge, wrath of God. So the words clearly show that God's attitude toward evil is anger. And the truth is that God is holy and thus he is angry with the sinner at this very moment. You can't separate the sinner from the sin. can't say that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. No. It's God has anger towards the sinner. Now, of course, that could be clarified if you flesh that out. Uh, I'm not doing that right now. A third reason why Jesus came to die is because we are subject to the wages of our sin. Now, of course, the most popular verse of Scripture in the Bible, the wages of sin is what? Death. You all know that one, don't you? And the free gift of eternal, of eternal life is, is what? What's that? All right, we'll look at that in a second. But the wages of sin is death. Now, in this particular passage of Scripture, and you, you may want to turn there, I want to turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And because I want to look at this for a minute, there are really, in this particular passage, we're confronted with two courses a person may take in this world. The first one is a soul will either yield to sin, serve it, and earn its wages. And we've all done that, actually. A second thing is a soul will yield to God, receive his gift, and live. Those are the two things. That's talked about there. But just to look at the word, the wages. Wage, what, is, what are wages? Well, wages are payment. They're compensation. They're earnings for something. A person, when they, they work, have a right to wages. When you go to work, you 
you uh, are going to wait for your, at the end of the week or at the end of the month, you're going to wait for payment for doing work, right? If, if you don't get paid, then they're not being fair with you. You ought to get paid because you did the work. So if a young man, for example, works uh, an eight-hour shift at, at some kind of hamburger joint and makes about six fifteen an hour, at the end of his shift, his wages would be about $49 and some cent, 20 cents or something a day. So his wages are said to be equivalent to the work performed. He or she uh, has earned them, and of course they need to uh, not thank anybody for, for the wages because they worked for them, right? There's no reason to thank anybody who did the work. You get paid. So if wages be the payment for work, then sin is the work that earns payment. So if a person has as their master sin, as this passage describes, then they earn wages for living in that condition. But they have no choice in determining the wages they would receive. That has already been set in the Word of God. What decides wages for a person who is mastered in sin, according to the word of God, is the law. The law is the one who decides the wage. The law is the recorded word of God given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And we know that the law reveals sin. In Romans 5.20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. And then also the law curses those who try to become right with God through observing it, for we see that the law brings about wrath, and where, of course, and then in Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So the law then decides that the wages paid to the person who has been a slave of sin is death. And that's why it says in the Word of God, the wages of sin is death. And so the Bible already tells us in other places, like in James, <coughs> that whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point has become guilty of all of it. So if a person commits one sin in their entire lifetime, according to the law of God, they are just as guilty as if they had broken every one of God's laws. The Word of God, Paul told uh, Timothy that but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So if we choose to sin as our master, if we choose sin as our master, then it determines the wages, it determines the earnings, the compensation that would be received, and of course the compensation, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, is death. Now, it says something else, though, in Romans chapter 6, and I'm going to come back to this in verse 23, it says this, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Now, up against wages is gift in that passage of Scripture, and we have to ask the question, too, what is a gift? Well, here's a, an expression of the divine grace of God, and the emphasis is on the freeness of the gift. So what, then, is a free gift? Well, a free gift is something you cannot earn that which no man can claim as his right, that which cannot be bought, and that which cannot be worked for. So summing that up, it is solely the result of God's goodness and God's grace, that God is, God's grace is unmerited favor, that's kindness shown to someone who does not deserve any kindness at all. Kindness shown to someone who doesn't deserve kindness at, at all. It is the free gift of God to people who are utterly undeserving of it. 
So grace is that which God does for mankind through His Son, which mankind cannot earn, and of course, does not deserve, and cannot merit. All right, can't do it. The Olympic Games has a section in their competition called the Marathon Race. I like the Marathon Race. The best runners in the world compete in that race. They condition hard for years just for the opportunity to re represent their, their countries in the Olympics. And yet only one runner could come away with the gold medal. The runner could have not earned the gold medal without years of hard work and training. I think sometimes we're conditioned uh, in that way when it comes to spiritual things, especially what God offers us in a free gift. We're conditioned to believe that we can't get something for nothing. And of course, most of the time that's true. So when we think of spiritual things, we often apply the same logic. If, if I'm going to live with God in heaven forever, I have to be the best person I can be in this life. So when I stand before God, I can hand him my gold medal of achievement, and certainly he will let me into heaven. People think like that all the time, don't they? They do. That's, that's the common way to think. But the Bible has something to say about attempting to reach heaven in that way. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Right? There's, there's many ways men think sound good are logical and all those things man tries to achieve heaven through religion through good works through morality through philosophy through self-righteousness so working your way to heaven seems right but god says it leads to death and so again back to romans six twenty three: the wages of sin is death you know bernard shaw said this the statistics on death are staggering. One out of one people die. But the Bible not only talks about physical death. Physical death is part of it. Physical death is when your spirit is separated from your body. It talks about spiritual death. Everybody who's born into the world is born spiritually dead. They're dead spiritually. Their spirit is separated from God. There's no relationship with God. So they're dead spiritually. Ephesians 2 speaks of that kind of death. But here Romans is going more towards eternal death, that the wages of, of sin is ultimately going to be physical death. It, it is spiritual death. But eternal death is the second death. See, sin pays its wages in full. The wages paid to a person who has been a slave of sin is death. And this passage is not merely referring to physical death, we will all face, but eternal separation and torment of all sinners uh, from, from God, separation from God in a place the Bible calls hell, that hell is really the proper punishment for men's sin. That this refers to here as, as the second death. And this is the final, the irreversible separation from God and from the face of God and from the life of God. It means eternally outside of God's life with all the consequent misery and suffering. Now, this is what God offers us in and through Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23, the free gift of God is eternal life. So eternal life is God's gift. It's not wages. It can't be worked for. It can't be earned. It does, it's not deserved. Any of those things. That is what eternal life means. It means sharing and enjoying the life of God to all eternity without the slightest suspicion and a mixture of sin and evil. That we have eternal life the moment we believe in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God, of course, regenerates us. We believe and then we bear fruit. It's because of Jesus that happens. And of course, Romans 6.23, in Christ Jesus our Lord. It all happens because of what he's done. That the life of man means the existence of man ought to uh, 
exist in union with God. That's how, why God really created us. Consequently, in holiness with God, in purity with God, in health and in happiness with God. And yet man, as a sinner, as sin makes him, is man abiding only in death, only in destruction, only in separation from God. So, what God offered a person on earth, they didn't want. And if they didn't want eternal life as a free gift from God, well then, God will permatize. He will permanentize your separation from God. And there's probably not a clearer passage of Scripture that drives that nail than 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, chapter one verse 7 through 9. In the middle of verse number 7, it says, when, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. Look at verse 8 dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of God and from the glory of His power. So very clearly, this is God taking those who do not obey the gospel and He's making it permanent that they will pay eternal destruction this is not some passing thing that uh, this is something that is eternal that hell is giving a person what they really desire if they reject the gift of God so we have a huge problem that people do not deal with accountability to God or with the guilt of their own sin or with the reality of their own death in the right manner. They kind of push it off. That the tra- I think the tragedy of modern man is that they, they know, it's not that they know, they know less and less about the meaning of, of their own life, it's because they're not bothered by it. They're not bothered by the reality of where they're heading, and they are heading somewhere. They're heading somewhere somewhere when they die. And that God in His grace and mercy told us in the Word of God what lay ahead in the future. So there's really no excuses. There's no excuses. But being that you all live in New Jersey, uh, if there was an excuse, if we can come up with an excuse this morning, it may go something like this. But, But Lord, you have to see it from my perspective. I live in the U.S. I live in New Jersey. Ninety percent of the people do not believe there is a judgment, a final judgment, or hell. And anyway, I've heard since I've been a little kid that you love everyone just the way they are. So, Lord, I don't really see the problem. You see... I went along with the majority because I was taught the majority is mostly always right. So, Lord, see, you have to change your mind. That's a New Jersey excuse, isn't it? Isn't that a U.S. excuse? Isn't that common of what a lot of people believe? uh, Through the years, I I did some reading on a very interesting subject of hell and uh, I've looked at some quotes, uh, and um, years ago, a man wrote a book, and his name was Robert Schuller, not the Robert Schuller in, in California that lost his crystal cathedral too badly for that, uh, but the distinguished minister of the Methodist Church in years gone by said, sidestepping the unpleasant reality of hell is one of the great feats of this generation. It's true. Jonathan Edwards a preacher from the Great Awakening said, almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. And then a man wrote a book called uh, Hell on Trial, Robert Peterson, mentioned that there are about five things in his book he said about the fate of the unsaved at death. And he said, number one, uh, life after death is unlikely. 
Number two, everyone goes to heaven. Number three, unbelievers get a second chance. Number four, unbelievers are ultimately destroyed, annihilated. Number five, unbelievers suffer eternally in hell. I'm, I'm surprised he included that. But he did, and it's true. The last one's true. Also, John Hicks, once a professor of the Christian faith, but since abandoned the Christian faith, said this of hell, a really strong statement. And he says this, it is a serious perversion of the Christian gospel, talking about hell. Also, he finds eternal punishment morally revolting because it attributes to God an unappeasable in vindictiveness and insatiable cruelty. Rob Bell, Gabe got me this quote. Rob Bell, he recently wrote a book called Love Wins. Rob Bell does not have a biblical view of hell unless he changed his view uh, up until today. And he said this, will everybody be saved? Or will some perish apart from God forever because of their choices? Those are questions, or more accurately, he says, those are tensions we are free to leave fully intact. We don't need to resolve them or answer them because we can't. So we simply respect them, creating space for the freedom love requires. Now that sounds like a really convoluted quote. But you know, if you really think about it, he is totally wrong. Those questions have to be answered. In fact, the Word of God answers them. In the Word of God, God's attitude toward the sinner is one of judgment and condemnation and wrath. That That's what we get saved from. That's why we need to get saved. So, so because God has the power to send us away forever, that's why we need to get rescued. John 3.18 He who believes in Him is not judged but he who does not believe has been judged already. All unbelievers are under the judgment of God right now. And because he has not believed, in, of course, in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the, the knowledge of hell for the believer, coupled with compassion, should move Christians to warn sinners of the dreadful consequences of the wrath of God in the lake of fire. It's a motivator for evangelism. I saw a sign uh, a couple years ago written, and written on the sign, I, I caught, my, uh, caught my eye, just looked at it for a second, but I always remember it. It was a great quote, and it said this, If there's a hell, when would you want someone to tell you how to avoid going there? See, so the if question is a good question. All right, you don't believe it, but if there is, would you want somebody to at least tell you how to escape it? And of course, the only way to escape it is Christ. He's the only way to escape it. In fact, Jesus Christ frequently spoke of hell and warned men of the dangers of going there. In Matthew 13, it says, the angels shall come forth, and of course, and they'll take out of the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them into a furnace of fire and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, uh, see, unless we understand the death of Jesus in light of the consequences of the wages of sin, the cross is just a symbol. It's just an emblem. It's just a piece of jewelry to wear in your ear or around your neck or wherever or tattoo it on your arm. See, the, the cross of Jesus Christ is really what rescues us. And so Jesus came. He died because he had to rescue us. I spent a long, long time on this from the wages of our sins because that is the crucial one. A fourth one, the reason why, is that because we are unable to remove our sin and guilt ourselves. In Romans chapter 3, in verse number 20, it says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So how many people, according to that passage, on earth will be right with God based on their good works and effort? The answer to that question, of course, is zero. The reason why religious efforts and good works and even 
going to church as a means of cleaning up your life, it can't remove your own guilt. It can't do it. Only Christ can remove your guilt. Only Christ can pay for your sin. Let me just try to illustrate it in this way. As, as, let's say a person, uh, a person robs Wawa. People go to Wawa, get your coffee in the morning. I don't know if you do or not. And on his way home, he gives some of the money to a charity. And then he helps a little old lady walk across the street. And then he places some clothes he had in his car in the Goodwill box. And he gets caught. Eyewitnesses see him. Uh, he's positively identified. He's guilty. He stands before the judge, and the judge asks him, how do you plead? And, the, and, and he says to the judge, not guilty. Why? Because, judge, you, you, you have to understand that I've committed one robbery, but on my way home I did three good deeds. So being that my good deeds outnumber my bad deeds, you've got to let me go free. See, no one, no one would take this as justice being served. Justice is served when the judge upholds the law and says to, to the man, the penalty, you must pay five to ten years in jail. See, God will not allow the guilty to go unpunished, it says in Exodus. He won't do it. We cannot remove our own guilt in fact, if you're right there in Romans, if you look over to chapter 2, uh, there's an interesting passage there that goes with this. And it says in verse number 3 of Romans chapter 2, but do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. See, God, God's own sense of justice had to be satisfied. There's no way we could satisfy his sense of justice by our good works, by our efforts, by our good deeds. That's why God had to send his son to be a propitiation for our sin, right? So see, he had to remove sin. He came to remove our sin and the guilt that goes along with it so it could never condemn us ever again. <coughs> the Bible says that eternal life is not the purchase of human merit, but the free gift of the love of God. And so that the gift of eternal life, God, in fact, the gift of eternal life is, is, is too precious to be bought. And it's, it's too full of God to be made by man. Every time I read the word of God, I'm, I'm saying to myself, nobody, no man can make this up. This is, this is different than what, the way men think. This is the mind of God when I read the word of God. Because we would never come up with this way of salvation. We would think like, like they thought. It's foolish. It's ridiculous. There's, there, you know, it doesn't seem right. All those things would come to our mind. But Jesus died because we're unable to remove our sin and guilt. And he, so he removes it for us. And then a fifth reason, because reason Jesus died is because we need someone else to die in our place. That Jesus was our substitute. He died our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin, what? To be sin on our behalf. Right? He became sin for us. The sinless became a sinner. Well, the sin, sinless Jesus Christ became sin for us. He and that's when the Father had to turn from him on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so why, does, why did this happen? Well, 
Jesus had to become a man. Jesus, of course, had to, as a, in humanity, suffer physical death. But Jesus also suffered spiritual death. That's really hard to understand. But that's what he's done. And so Jesus comes into the world, and as Luke chapter 19.10 says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So he did, how did he accomplish his mission? In the person of Jesus Christ, God literally became a man, lived a perfect and a righteous uh, life, obedient to all the laws, and he did it all, not for himself, but in behalf of his children. And so, having perfectly obeyed the law, Christ then willingly died for sinners. So, if we just think of that for a minute, we think that someone was a substitute. Someone died in the place that we should have died. Someone paid for our sin, when if we don't have Christ as our Lord and Savior, we will pay for our sin. So, as we have seen, sin against God's laws brings death and punishment, both physical and and, of course, spiritual death. And when Christ died, he endured the wrath and the anger and the punishment of God for sins, for our sins. He died as the sacrifice for our sins. And, of course, satisfying the requirements of divine justice on the cross, he took upon himself the punishment due our sins. And, of course, the Bible says, For Christ also died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust. For what reason? To bring us to God. To bring us, blaze a trail right into the presence of God. And he does that. He had to die to accomplish what we could have never accomplished. A sixth thing is because we are unable to reconcile reconcile ourselves to God and remove our alienation from God. That means this, that Romans 5, 10, and 11 For while we were enemies, right? We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That the sinner cannot reconcile themselves to God. That's God's place. It is only when the sinner repents and turns to Christ Jesus in faith. And only then can God the Father change his attitude toward the sinner. And he does it because of what Christ has done, from one of wrath to one of peace. That means that all alienation between the repentant sinner and God was was and has ended forever. And this change between in relationship between us and God, from enemy to friend, from that of being at war with God to being at peace with God, is solely based on the death and the resurrection of his son. There's no way anyone can accomplish that on their own apart from Christ. So he had to come. And he had to do it so he can reconcile us to God. And then the last thing, and not a final thing, but a last this morning, is that Jesus' death broke open the way to God. And of course, that death was uh, a great passage of Scripture from Mark chapter 15, where This was when Jesus was on the cross and he was dying on the cross and it says in verse number 33, uh, 1533, it says, and at the ninth hour, excuse me, verse 33, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So around 12 noon to 3 p.m. in the afternoon, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this, this forsaking is, really means complete abandonment. That the father completely abandoned his son on the cross so he could die. A holy God could have not... The abandonment came because God's holy. And so he had to let his son paid the full penalty and price at that point and so had to forsake him, completely abandon him on the cross alone to take care of it. And uh, we often don't think about it like that. It's not like, oh, I'll see you in a couple days or a couple hours. No, we're talking about eternal punishment that Jesus Christ paid on the cross that day. And so therefore, in verse number 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. He was in full control of when he would die 
at the exact hour he would die on the cross, it wasn't the Roman government who was in control of everything. It wasn't the angry crowd. It wasn't the Jews. It was God himself who was ordering every step of Christ going to the cross. In verse number 38, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's what I'm saying, because Jesus' death broke open the weight of God. That the curtain in the temple was broken, it was torn in two, and that gave us access now to the Holy of Holies through the cross of Jesus Christ. And as the book of Hebrews already told us, that we have confidence to enter his presence because Jesus Christ broke open the veil by his own death. In fact, his death, dying in his human body on the cross, was the veil that was ripped open so we can have access and full assurance of faith to the Father and access to the Father. So see, Jesus died to save his people from their sins. He does it by taking all their sins all the sins of his people and putting on himself. And because he took their load, the load of his people, they are free and they're no longer, they no longer have the burden and weight of their own sin because he's taken it. He saves them by bearing the penalty due because of their sin that Christ was a curse for us. He suffered for us. He died and bled for us the just for the unjust to bring us to God. He saves us by bearing the full wrath of God's clean and exact judgment. And of course, Jesus has taken the sin and paid the penalty that was due to us. And then he saves his people from the power and the tyranny and the dominion of sins which had mastery over us. And he breaks that mastery. And so therefore, we don't need to allow sin to reign over our mortal bodies anymore because we have by the power of the spirit of God and his word the ability to say no to our sin because Christ not only died but rose again and gives us resurrection power to do that and he saves us completely that is Jesus work was so thorough that everything was accomplished and nothing else needs to be done. He was the one-time sacrifice forever for all those who would put faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so completely does Jesus save those who receive him as Lord and Savior that he makes them fit to dwell with God and be one with Jesus Christ eternally. There's nothing else that we have to do. And so... All these things were accomplished. And these are some of the reasons why Jesus had to die. So we can be saved. So what must you do? Well, if you don't know Christ this morning, you need to repent and believe. And repentance is the conscious recognition that you are a sinner. And that you are turning to a Savior who can forgive your sin and make you right with God and reconcile you to himself. He's the only one who could do that. Come with all your sin. Come with all your works, your efforts, your religion. Come with all of it and bring it to the Lord Jesus Christ and let him save you alone and cast all that other stuff out by the side. And then you need to believe, of course, believe in Jesus alone for salvation, repentance towards God, the Father, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because faith in Christ is the solution to the problem. See, faith in Christ is what rescues you. So the bottom line is that Jesus died on the cross to rescue you. It was a divine rescue mission. Amen? And if you're rescued this morning, then you have a free gift. You have the free gift of eternal life offered to you by Jesus Christ, taken care by Jesus Christ, and fully completed by Jesus Christ. So it removes doubt of salvation. It gives us joy in our heart. It gives us hope to live while we're here. It gives us a hope for the future. It gives us a happiness that only God can give.
And so I pray during this time of year you may take some of those things and rethink them and go over them in your own heart and mind and realize how far and to what extent God went to save you. And if anybody thinks they can possibly save themselves, they would have to somehow match every one of those things and more. And you know what? They're not going to be able to do it. You have to give it up. And you have to say this, Christ is the only way. He's the truth. He's the way. He's the life. If I'm going to go through the Father, I have to go through Christ. He's the door, right? And so let's thank the Lord for that this morning as we uh, just praise his name uh, in song. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we do praise you because of your goodness to us, because of the greatness of, of our salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died a death that we could have never died. You have accomplished on the cross uh, things that we could have never accomplished uh, in our humanity. Thank you, Lord, that you saw our great need and you, you met them by coming into this world when you didn't have to, but you did, and that you came to institute a divine rescue mission for those people who were caught in the slave market of sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you brought it to our attention. Thank you, Lord, that you opened our eyes. You, you gave us life to repent it and believe. Thank you that we know, according to the word of God, that we can know we have eternal life because we believe in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, this morning, if someone hasn't, they would today. They would come and receive you as their Lord and Savior right where they're at. And I pray those who have, I pray that you would increase our faith and our joy and our resolve to serve you with our whole heart while we're here on this earth. And I just praise you again for all that you have done and you will do uh, in our life. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen.